Welcome to the Ramp Church Podcast. We are so honoured that you've joined us today and we pray that you will be encouraged and inspired by this week's message. If you'd like to know more about Ramp Church Manchester or would like to partner with us in giving, visit us over on our website, ramp.church forward slash mcr or find us on social media. Now let's head straight into this week's message. If you have your Bible, you can turn to the book of Galatians. The reason why I said maybe it's a prequel is because I'm going to actually read out of Galatians 4. And last week I spoke on Galatians 5. It was a bit of a brutal message. So if you've, if you've not yet heard it and you want to feel uncomfortable, I don't know, is that really a sales pitch? You can go back and listen. It's available on demand at our YouTube channel, Ramp Church MCR. Uh, or on podcasts, really, anywhere you like to listen to podcasts. And the, the basic gist, I want to give you a, a basic recap of that message. And then I'll dive into Galatians 4. Now, one of the reasons I love to read scripture in my messages, there's so many different ways to preach. But just to give you a little behind the scenes, one of the reasons I love to read maybe even long passages of scripture when I preach is not just because the word is powerful, although it is. Not just because it renews our mind although it does, but because I I also want you to learn how to read the Word while I'm preaching. So there's kind of two things happening at the same time. You're not just receiving the topic of the message, but you're also learning how to approach this Bible. Because So I've been in Galatians all year. I love saying that because it sounds like I've been in, in it for months, but it's really just been like three weeks. I've been in Galatians all year. But for me personally, I've just been living there. Now, it's, it's only a few chapters, so it would take you like 20 minutes to read. So I've read it several times, and I, I started off really confused by, by it. It's not like an easy thing to understand. Have you ever read the Word and, and come away like feeling like that? Like, well, I hope someone understands what that means because I'm confused. That's, that's to me, when I, start, when I ventured into Galatians, like there's bits and pieces where I was like, yes, this is making sense. But there were long passages, especially when Paul gets into talking about the law, that I was like, what in the world is he talking? Of course, I had a sense. But diving deeper has been so life-giving for me. And I know that God's wanting to do something in me this year through some of, the, some of these messages. So for me, this is key for us. But last week, a little recap of last week. We were talking about looking at your life what, what Paul in Galatians would call fruit, fruit of your life. He uses that metaphor. In other words, what's the result of the way you're living? It's what Paul's saying. I love what Andy Elm says. He says, you've never walked by a tree and a tree's like, it's like straining and then like an apple comes out. Right? Fruit is just the byproduct of what's on the inside, of the DNA, of the nature or the characteristics of that apple tree. In the same way, that's why Paul uses this metaphor. You can look at the results of your life and reverse engineer what's happening on the inside. Now, we think that faith, we think that following Jesus is doing all the right things on the outside, and that's going to make God happy with me, and then he's going to give me a ticket to heaven. Like, maybe we wouldn't say it like that, but we live as if that's the case. So many of us come to church... Because we think that's what I'm supposed to do as a Jesus follower. And that isn't really what church is about. That's not what home groups are about. We start those in a couple weeks. That's not what that's about. It isn't like, yeah, let me tick the boxes and make sure that I'm doing the right things and then I'm a Christian. Paul's Paul's kind of reversing that model. And he's saying, the way you can know... If you have a faith in you, is look at the results of your life. That's what you you look at. What's happening as a result of you living? Paul calls that fruit. And it's amazing, Jesus uses that botanical metaphor as well, of fruit. John 15. And before I get into my message, there's a few things that we can learn from that metaphor. We talked about this last week. That change, life change in your, ha- in your life is gradual. 
I wish that the metaphor that Paul used in Scripture for life change was like building a house, right? Like there's nothing there. You, you, you give your life to Jesus, the Spirit's at work, and then a couple months later, you have a whole new life. But that's not how it works. Life change is gradual. That's one of the things we can learn from that metaphor. Another thing we can learn is it matters what's around you, your environment. That's a botanical metaphor, right? Because you could put an orange tree in Norway, but you're not going to get any oranges, right? Because an orange tree has to be in the right environment to produce fruit. This is what kicks that whole idea that, that like my generation and below that we love to preach is like, hey, I don't need church, just me and Jesus. That's enough. Right? I, I, I got me and Jesus. We're hanging. My faith's enough. That's all I need. Well, that, that's, that, whose faith are you talking about? Because if you're talking about the faith that's, that's rooted in the biblical revelation of what, of what faith we're living, that's not the same faith. You just created that. You just made that up. And we don't get, we don't get to determine what our faith looks like. We're inheriting a 2,000-year-old faith. We don't just get to twist it in whatever form and shape we want to, to twist it into. Now, if you want to live like that, you can. Just don't call it Christianity. Call it something else. Because that's not Jesus' faith. Jesus' faith cares about the environment that I'm in. It understands that there are multiple things that go into the life change that Jesus is promising me. And community, Christian community, is one of those. It's one of those things that's essential for us. So environment matters. That's not what I'm preaching about, by the way. That was free. Amen. Just kidding. It's all free. Uh, it matters what's around you, your environment. But there's another thing that that botanical metaphor teaches us, and this is really kind of where I'm going to hang my hat for, for this message. It matters where you're rooted. Say rooted. It matters where you're rooted. Any Star Wars fans in the house? Any mildly, so I can I get some air, some hands straight up in the air, some mildly Star Wars fans. Do you know the bar scenes? Anybody that, like the bar scenes in Star Wars? Like where some of the Star Wars characters come into the bar, and there's like all different characters everywhere. You know, there's uh, some some are robots, some have multiple eyes or one eye, or I mean, it's just a strange environment. And I I, I realized recently where George Lucas had to have gotten the vision for the Star Wars bar scene. He had to have gotten it on an international flight. <laughs> have you ever traveled internationally? It, it feels like that often. You walk in, you're like, whoa, whoa. The other thing is, you're closer to strangers than you really ever want to be in your entire life. <laughs> Stacy and I do a fair a bit of international traveling, and I just wonder what would the hotel industry look like if they if they like put people into the t same type of spaces as like the international travel agency, they like check you into your room and there's like an armrest separating you on the same bed from like 30 other people. This is your spot, sir. Okay, all right, here I go. Yeah. It's crazy, it's bananas, the whole environment of international travel. But recently, Stacy and I, a few years ago actually, we were traveling and we go up to customs, which is like one of the most intimidating aspects of travel because you've just been on a flight for however long. For us, it was about eight hours. We're getting off a flight. We have the whole family, three kids. It's like moving house. We're, we're, bring, we're dragging our, our luggage. We're trying to look presentable. We're trying to string two words together when we talk to the customs officer because we know our life is in his hands. And so he takes all of our boarding passes and you know, he asks us a few questions. And um, one of the questions he asks us is, um, have you guys brought any food into the country? And, of course, I confidently, no, 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 we don't have any food in the country. Stacy, unbeknownst to me, says, well, yes, yes, I do have food. So at the exact same time, I say no, and Stacy says yes. So great first impression here on the customs officer. And, um, and, and immediately, the, the border guard goes, oh, really? And she goes, yes. What is it? And she said, it's oranges. And he goes, oranges, okay. All right, oranges. And then he looks down and he writes a red A on our boarding pass. And I'm like, yes, awesome. A is good, right? I mean, A grades better than B or C. Or D. Like, yes, we're getting, you know, he's having mercy on us for whatever reason. He's asking us why we have fruit. I'm not sure. So A. So he goes, so he doesn't say anything else. He just hands us our boarding pass. 
So I'm like, yes, okay, we're good. We, get, we got through. Like, massive relief. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Border control, you get through, you're like, yes, it's happened. So here we are. We go through, we go through the, the baggage claim. We get all the rest of our baggage. And we're heading out the little section that says, you can't, you can't go back, right? You know what I mean? It's like, no way. And right before that, there's a sign with a big letter red A on it. It says, if you have this on your boarding pass, turn right. I was like, great. <laughs> so we turn right and we go to this designated section. And above the designated section, it says this, agriculture. And immediately I knew the A had nothing to do <laughs> with a grade. So we go and if, uh, the, the way we were treated as if we, if we were literally carrying radioactive material. We walk up to the counter and there's someone with gloves and I, I immediately put our, put our bag that had the oranges in it on the counter and I start to open it and the person behind the counter goes, whoa, stop. Just like that, gloves on. I was like, okay, okay. And he goes, I'll open the bag. I was like, all right, bro, take your time. So back away a bit. This guy lives to find agriculture, apparently. So... He opens the bag like slowly as if like something's going to jump out at him. And he reaches out and finds these oranges. To of course, the whole, now, no, 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 before that, of course, the whole time I am like ticked off. I'm like so annoyed. I'm like, Stacy, why did you bring oranges 4,000 miles around the world when they have oranges in America? I promise they do. So first, he pulls out a little, a little container, a little Tupperware container of white powder. Because, because my wife's one of these people that if we can bring our own tea and sugar, she's not going to pay for it. So she had a little container of sugar for her tea. Now, when you're looking for agriculture at an agriculture desk and they see white powder, they're not thinking sugar. Do I need to fill in the dots for those who are uninitiated in the room? So, pulls out the white powder, and I just look at Stacy. I'm like, you have got to be kidding me right now. Puts the white powder aside, starts taking out just random things out of the bag, and then finds the oranges. And he takes out the oranges as if they're, as if they're grenades, about to, you know, just like the most gentle walks back to the counter, places them down. All while this is happening, I look to my left, and there is, there's literally a guy with suitcases open, and, and one of the agents is, pull, is opening plastic bags, and there's huge green leaves, like, poking out of his, of his luggage. And I'm like, we're here for oranges, and that dude is smuggling in whatever that is over there, and we're, like, in the same category right now. Pulls out the oranges, comes, asks us loads of questions. Of course, which all the answers were, dude, we're, we were hungry. Like, we just want oranges. That's why we just want fruit. So figure, they finally figure out we're not fruit smugglers. Is that a thing? We weren't whatever it is they were looking for. They, they put our bags back together, and then we leave. But I realized this reality about, you know, so I start thinking about it. I'm like, God, please redeem that whole experience in my mind. And I realize that the reason they're, they're not going to let you carry fruit from one place to the other is because, obviously, fruit can be a carrier for something else, right? It's not just food, especially fresh fruit, can be a carrier for something else. And when you realize this about any time you read about fruit in the Scripture, you realize that when someone eats of the fruit of someone else's life, they're not just eating the fruit. But they're also consuming whatever is the source of that fruit. Do you know fruit always contains seed? Fruit always contains seed. So you go, well, it really doesn't matter what I partake of. But actually it does because everything that feeds you also includes the ability to reproduce itself. That's the nature of fruit. The point of fruit is it, makes, it, ma it is a seed carrier. It makes something appetizing so that if an animal eats the fruit, it also eats the seed. And then wherever it travels, 
the seed is deposited. I hope you're, you're catching the metaphor that I don't have to get any more graphic than that. Right? The seed is then transported. That, the, that really the only purpose of the seed, of the, of the fruit, is seed transportation. Seed multiplication. That the reason fruit in your life matters is because you will reproduce who you are in the fruit that comes from your life. So when Paul says in Galatians, review the fruit of your life. And then he's, then he's, then he's using this, this idea. Where did that fruit come from? Does it come by self-effort? Does it come by another gospel message? Does it come by, oh, you're gritting your teeth and making it happen? Does it come by... What, what's, what's, what's the source? What's the source of the fruit in your life? Because whatever that source is will be reproduced in your life and in the people around you who are partaking of that fruit. Do you know Christianity isn't the only faith system in the world? I mean, that's obvious as far as religions are concerned, but in the West. See, we had this idea in the Enlightenment. Can I give you a little history lesson here? I think it's so important for us to understand the worldviews that are around us. Otherwise, you, you don't understand what's influencing the way you think. But the Enlightenment birthed this idea that science is all we need. Maybe you're someone here who that's kind of your persuasion. Science is enough. Science has done what religion could never do. And so the Enlightenment in many ways was the idea or produced the idea that, that God is dead. Religion is dead. Faith is dead. Science is all we need. Now, it come to find out post that, so that's the modern movement, post-modern movement, basically realized that's not really true. We can go into all the reasons why that is. But it, it also showed us this, that science is a religion or a faith all its own, just like Christianity. That it identifies a problem, it identifies a solution, it identifies a greatest sin, and an answer to all those things. You see, the, 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 the problem that, tri that science identifies of all of humanity, and you're going to see this in your friends, maybe it's in yourself, is, is a knowledge problem. The reason why we are where we are is a lack of knowledge. That's the answer. That's where the mantra comes, knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. That's where, that's where it comes from. So the, the, the greatest sin from that worldview is weakness. And the answer to all of life's problems is technology. That's the worldview. Now, that kind of thinking is what, is what birthed the world wars. We don't really have time to go into that. But we see what happens when technology becomes the source of, of the answer. And the greatest sin in our worldview is weakness. It's, it's an evolutionary-based idea, philosophy. It's when evolution gets out of science and turns into a philosophy for the way we live life. We can then justify the strong destroying the weak. Thank you, World War II. Are you tracking with me? That's a result of science becoming not just, not just living in the scientific world, but becoming a philosophy for the way we understand and live life. It's a worldview. Beauty, every worldview has, uh, identifies what, what's beauty, what's beautiful. Beauty in the scientific philosophy is efficiency. So it's the shortest period of, 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 of time between work and, and productivity. That's, where the, that's why the factory was, was invented in the scientific age. Because, because we, we, we view people not as humans, but as resources, right? Human resources. I, I know I'm moving quickly here, but we don't have time for me to camp out there. Scientific worldview, you've heard about it. But that was replaced by the postmodern worldview, which in many ways rejected some of the claims of the scientific worldview, and it's based on myth or story. We can't know, and knowledge is no longer power, but the mantra of the postmodern movement is be yourself. Everybody else is taken, right? Be yourself. That's such a sweet Instagram meme. Be yourself, everybody else is taken, right? But the problem... To the postmodern age, the problem they're trying to solve is exclusivity, inequality. So any, any worldview, any idea that claims ultimate truth, they reject full stop. Can't be. Can't be. We're all on equal footing, right? So myth, story, it's, it's every, everybody's version of truth. So the answer 
For them, the answer, the answer to life's problems is advocacy. I really don't have time to d dive into this, but I really just want to give you some, some just little, little ingredients here for where I'm going. The answer to, to, to the problem in the world of exclusivity or inequality in the postmodern mindset is advocacy. You know, there are, there are actually now courses that are being developed for primary school children about how to be an advocate. I don't have a problem with advocacy, but I'm just saying that for them is the ultimate answer, advocacy. The greatest sin in the postmodern world is self-denial. Self-denial, because the ultimate beauty is authenticity. That's the ultimate beauty in, in the postmodern world. And we've imported a lot of these, some, some of them scientific, and some of them postmodern, into Christianity. We've imported a lot of these ideas. Now, I'm going to take all this back to Galatians here in a second. Because Paul is actually not just speaking against law as in Judaism or Torah or Jewish law. He's actually speaking against anything that any salvation project aside from Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's comparing it to. So he's saying, let's, let's, let's gather all of our self-salvation projects in one pile and let's compare them to what that looks like to follow Jesus. That's the comparison. So now let's dive into Galatians. Let's actually start the, at the end of verse 3. Uh, chapter 3, excuse me. Is that all right? Yeah. Have I lost you? No. Are you okay? Galatians chapter 3. When you're there, say, I'm there. I'm there. If you don't have your Bible or you don't want to pull up on your phone, it'll be on the screen above me. Galatians chapter 3, let's, let's start in verse number 26. And then we're going to read through chapter 4, verse 11. Verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized or immersed or united or joined into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. Some of you need to meditate on that every day of your life. You think you're living life all by yourself, but it's because you've forgotten. You've been, you've been immersed. You've been clothed with Jesus himself. And then he says this. This is beautiful. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, Paul, can I, let me just stop you here. Paul is not saying, obviously, there's nobody who's in slavery because he was surrounded by people who were in slavery. He's not saying there's no such thing as male or female in, 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 uh, pertaining to our, our biology. There's, there's obviously, he is, he's not denying that reality. What he's saying is, when you clothe yourself with Jesus, the things that we divide ourselves with and identify with all, all become consumed in the transcendent reality that you're joined with Christ. Let me say it a different way. That now becomes your preeminent identity. When, when you are following Jesus, when you put your trust for your life's direction, for your eternity, for your vision of success and beauty into Christ's hands the most important thing about you becomes your unification with Jesus. Does that make sense? Yes. Soren Kierkegaard, the Dutch philosopher, said it like this. Sin, this is how he describes sin. Anything in your life that you draw your identity from outside of God is sin. Did you hear me? Anything you draw your identity from outside of Christ is sin. We are in an identity age. Can I get a witness? One of, one of the greatest right now currents in society is we're choosing to identify ourselves based on what we want, our desires, to the point that now I will define my entire existence or life direction based on my sexual desire. It defines everything else about me. And here's the thing, whoever your God is always gets to determine your identity. Come on. 
It's part of the role of your God in, in your life. Whoever gets to determine your identity is your God. That's, that's the kind of thinking Paul's trying to say here. What's the fruit of what you're thinking? Use that to analyze where it's coming from. And we've got to understand, God, the true living God, the creator of the universe, the one who knew you before a single atom in all of creation was created, he is the only one qualified to determine your identity. Are you hearing me? Doesn't mean he doesn't love us with all of our brokenness. Am I still struggling with identity things? Of course, I'm human. But my pursuit is to pursue the one who knows me, who knows the very fabric and DNA of my soul. Who, as Jeremiah says, he knew me in, intimately, intricately, before a single part was even formed. He was aware of who I was. That, and when that is the source of your identity, everything changes. Everything changes. And one of the reasons we're filled in, a, in an age with such anxiety is because we feel the pressure to constantly define ourselves. And we're constantly faced with the idea that I'm not good enough based on my own definition. Look at what happens when I compare myself to this person or that person or that Instagram filter or this, this idea or that reality show. So this process of constantly redefining my own identity, it's exhausting. And it creates, it creates anxiety in our life. And Paul is speaking into this dynamic when he, when he says, if you belong to Christ, you are heirs according to God's promise. Let me unpack that in a bit. Galatians 4 verse 1. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces or principles, maybe your translation says, of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons or daughters, that's not a gender-specific phrase, sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. I wish I could unpack that a bit more. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. Paul's describing a people who have discovered the grace of God and then have turned back to a gospel or a salvation project that doesn't include God. It's all on their own. But uh, one of the things that's interesting, we're talking about where are you rooted. One of the things that's interesting is Paul using the metaphor of slavery. And this is super teachy today. Is this okay? I'm acting as if we were sitting in my living room right now in a home group and just kind of opening up the scripture together. But Paul uses the metaphor slavery, which to me is wild. Like, that's a pretty, like, intense metaphor. Like, you're, you, are in, you are enslaved to the law or your own salvation project. Why does he use such a strong, I mean, he could have said, like, it's unwise, it's not the best idea, it's like eating a lot of carbs late at night, you're going to feel terrible the next day. I mean, he could, have, you know, he could have said anything. But he says, it's like slavery, it's living in slavery. And, and I think he's purposeful, of course, in that metaphor. And there's three things I think that we can learn from that metaphor. The first thing is, we've already talked about, a slave is stripped of their identity. When you're a slave, your uniqueness, it doesn't matter. Your characteristics, who you are, you're just, you're just a tool, you're just a cog in a machine. So when you're in slavery to a law that is not God-birthed, it strips your identity, or at best it provides a false identity. So let me say it this way. Whatever you use to define yourself or to find your identity in that isn't God will, will become a master to you. Are you hearing me? You think that the identity that you're finding outside of God is freedom? It's not freedom. Because it, it, because it has demands of its own. 
all of a sudden you start to have to serve, you're, you're having to serve the thing that you've used to identify you. Am I, tr are you tracking with me? And once you serve it, what Paul's saying is you become a slave of it. It, it, because why? It has determined an identity for you that is not God's identity. Your identity, Paul says, is, is that of a son, a daughter, an heir. I'll get into that in a little bit. The next thing that this metaphor of slavery does for us is it determines that you have a diminished relationship with your master. Slaves, if in their relationship with their master, they, they have a diminished relationship. There's no equality. The master doesn't care about their wants or their needs, right? Their, their entire existence is serving the master. But Paul is saying... God's Spirit's come into your life so that you will be slave to nothing. But you're now a son. And the next thing is when, when you're in slavery, it limits the source of the change or the growth in your own life to your own efforts or your own abilities. But a son, when you enter into sonship, you've also entered into the ability to have an inheritance, a spiritual inheritance from God. That you can, you can walk in something that someone else has paid for. That's an inheritance. When you're living your own self-salvation project, whatever you're eating, you did. Whatever, whatever fruit, you did it. Whatever issues, it's your fault. But when you enter into relationship with God, you, you all of a sudden have access to the work of another. Someone who came before you. What the Bible says is the firstborn among many brethren. You have the same spirit inside of you that raised Jesus from the dead. And now you get to live in an inheritance of what someone else did for you. That's what Paul's getting at in Galatians. But it's amazing that even though it's slavery, we often still want it. Paul says it like this to the Galatians a chapter earlier. He says, Galatians, who's bewitched you? He uses that phrase. Who's bewitched you? He, he's almost like this law, this, this self-salvation project you're into right now, it's almost like it's a magical spell on your mind. Why are you choosing this? And I want to show you a few reasons, and maybe you'll find yourself in this. I find myself in, in several things on this list. Why do, you, why do we choose it then? Why do we choose slavery? Because success by our own efforts is intoxicating. I like to, I like to do great things, and I like to look at how great I just did. There's nothing wrong with celebrating our own our, our achievements, but as far as where as far as again identity or or meaning in life, I, it's intoxicating. Clarity, knowing what to do, it's a cheap comfort, and it feels similar to genuine satisfaction of really knowing God. It's a handy tool. Religion's a handy tool for those who desire power. Rules are a handy tool. Our flesh wants to be in charge. One of the main reasons, though, is because we're deeply invested in the social economy of being impressive. Deeply. That we believe the world around us, we believe the lie they're telling us, that the most important thing about you is you can be impressive, you can prove your worth, that your, your, your entire worth is based on achievements or you finding yourself or being authentic. That's why. That's why we choose that, that slavery. But God offers us a different level of of freedom. God's Spirit brings freedom by delivering us from the tyranny of our own desires. The cost of our own brokenness and the curse of our own judgment. So getting to our identity in Christ. Our identity has been rooted, Paul is saying, it has been rooted in your ethnicity, or your social status, or your gender. But I'm now shifting your identity to some place that transcends all of those things. And let, let me read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19 to you. Will you turn there with me? Ephesians chapter 3, 17, 18, and 19. Look at this. Here's a promise, an identity promise for you and I. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots, it's about identity, 
Where, where are your roots of identity? Where are they placed? Your roots of identity will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep His love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. There is something that happens when the roots of my identity when they come out of the systems and the salvation projects of the world around me, and they start to find life in the love of God. There's also an invitation that Colossians gives us. Colossians chapter 2, verse 7. It says this, Let your roots grow down into Christ, and let your lives be built on Him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. What does it look like to have your identity rooted in Christ? It's this. It's something on the inside discovers the love of Christ for you. When you start to discover the source of love, that, then, that, that comes from Christ, every other affection feels black and white wow. <laughs> compared to the vibrancy and the full color of knowing the love of God. That's what Paul's trying to get at here. He, he, start, he gets to fruit at the end of Galatians, but what he's saying is there's something in your heart that should find the Spirit of God. And don't be so focused on fruit Because if you focus on living in the Spirit of God, your heart starts to come alive with vibrancy and life. And in that place, your roots have the opportunity to grow deep down into Christ. John, Jesus himself would say it like this in John 15, verses 4 through 5. Remain in me... And I'm also going to remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And what he means is, he's not trying to say you can't, you literally can't do anything without me. What he's trying to say is, whatever you do outside of me will be fruitless, no matter how successful it looks. That's what he's trying to say. But the opportunity is that our hearts are longing for the future, our hope for what's meaningful about our lives, our idea of what an ideal future is, that all of those things are rooted in the love of Christ. And when we root down deep into the love of Christ, everything from there on out changes. Everything. You know where you'll find your identity? Rooted in the love of Christ. You know until you find your identity in the love of Christ, everything else you do will be trying to prove that you're worthy to be loved or accepted or belonged or admired. That you're worthy to be safe. Why did Christ give us the opportunity to start with His love? Because He knows if you can find your place and your identity in His love, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Everything I give from that location becomes overflow. Interactions with other people start to be an opportunity to give. Because now I I don't need something from you. I've already found it in Him. I've already found my acceptance, my validation, my worth. It's already been rooted. Why? Because my roots are down deep. Down deep. You know what happens when your roots are down deep? When you, when you face circumstances that would normally make you question God's goodness, you can't question His goodness because you just tasted it. In the love of God that your roots are down deep living in. 
this is why oftentimes Christians will face suffering like we have for the past two years worldwide and they lose their faith because their faith is not rooted in, in, in the love of God. Their faith is rooted in their own performance. Their faith is rooted in circumstances. Their faith is rooted in what other people think about them. But when our faith is rooted in the love of God, no longer do people's opinions mean the same thing to us. No longer do circumstances have the same effect on us. Because we're rooted in the love of God. How do we find this? It's quite simple. You could almost boil down every single one of my messages to one thing. <laughs> what, what do you do? You spend time with God. I don't want you, you can blow my message down to that. Spend time with God. What's the pathway? Time in God's presence. Time in God's presence. You, you can't experience love if I never make space for that love to happen. I, you, know, you know a sure way to destroy my marriage? A sure way to destroy my marriage is, is, is not just to someday just like, I'm, I'm going to hate her. I'm going to hate my wife. That's, of course, going to do it. But you know a sure way that's maybe a little more subtle? Stop creating space for love to grow. It's a sure way. Just let life happen. We're both very busy people. We're both very driven people. We're both very ambitious people. We have three kids. Enough said. So our lives are full. If we stop being intentional about creating space for the roots of our heart to find love and nourishment in each other, pretty soon we're just going to be on two different paths. Because I haven't created space for love to grow. Let's not be surprised if the same thing happens in our walk with God. It starts to feel routine, there's not much life in it, or I start, I start my, my whole entire spiritual life revolves around the Sunday gathering, and you know, those people just aren't my vibe, it's just not my style anymore. Uh, the way he preaches, his American accent just gets on my nerves, that music, I'm just not into that. I mean, you know, whatever it is, like my whole entire spiritual existence revolves around what happens in this room. If that's your life, there is so much more. There is so much more, and I promise. You're not going to like us enough for us to keep you connected to Jesus. I'm just not that great. <laughs> I'm not that great. Does that make sense? You've got to get, get connected to him. And do you know what? After a while, we, we hang out long enough, I'm actually going to get on your nerves, and I'll probably offend you from time to time because I'm human. Let, don't let me keep you from him. Come on. That's a good word. Because your roots need to be deep in Jesus' love. Not my performance or my ability to preach or Olivia's ability to sing or our ability to, to have volunteer programs that really make you resonate and come alive or serving opportunities in the city. Or, I mean, all those things are good and I want to do that. But let, don't let that be the locus point, the center point, the, 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 the way you orient your life around, around your spiritual wall. Yeah, that can't be it. It's got to be God's love. It's got to be God's love. That's the, so what's the pathway to this? Time in God's presence. Time in God's presence to allow the roots of your faith and your heart to find nourishment in the depths of God's love that you have never found before. Let me say this. If you don't spend, this sounds really, this sounds really intense, but I mean it. If you don't spend time in God's presence, you will grow further and further away from God. And the older I get, the more mature I get in my faith, hopefully I'm more mature in faith than I was a year ago, the more mature I get in faith, the more time I feel like I need. It's not, the, it's not, it's not less. I, I, I hope that when I'm, when I'm 75, I'm like hitting top speed. I don't, I don't, I'm not at top speed right now. So don't judge me now. I'm just getting going. I'm not at top speed. My goal is to, my goal is to hit top speed in a couple decades. Are you with me? Time in God's presence. And number two, this is, a, this is a yucky word right here in modern day culture. Obedience. Obedience. These two things. These are two things. Time in God's presence and obedience. You know, obedience is really hard for me. I, I hate being told what to do. Like, I hate it. Like, me and God have issues with, with being told what to do a lot. We have arguments about it because, well, apparently he thinks he knows everything or something. But I can't. I can't. I can't deal. Like the other day, we were boarding another international flight story. And when you come onto an international flight, there's a, there's a flight attendant there, and they tell you what aisle to go on. Have you, you know what I'm talking about? You show them their boarding pass. I can't stand that. I can't stand Like, I know what aisle. I've been on an airplane before. 
do you know who I am? I mean, I don't know what I'm thinking, but like, please don't tell me which aisle to walk down. I don't know. There's something about, there's something about that. What is that in us? We want to govern ourselves. I will do what you're asking me to do, God, when it's something I already wanted to do. That's not obedience or submission. That's agreement. Uh, let me tell you, obedience and submission is not tested until you hear something you don't want to do. Some of y'all aren't writing that down and you need to be. See, the reason, the, the reason, why, the reason why you don't have an o- obedience problem right now in your own life is because, A, you're either apathetic. Like, I don't care. Whatever he tells me to do, I'll do it. Yeah, I mean, whatever. So there's no conviction there. Or, or you're, you, you've never bumped across something that disagrees with what you're already wanting to do anyway. Obedience is tested when you hear a word from God that you don't want to do. When you submit yourself to something from this book that I don't like. Can I just let you know, if God is truly God, if he really is God... He's going to disagree with you from time to time. I'm so sorry to burst the bubble. I know you're smart. But at at some time, either he's going to submit himself to you or you're going to submit yourself to him. And I can already tell you how that one's going to end up. Are you with me? If he's truly God. Now, if, if all you're trying to do is just reinforce your conclusions that you already have, you can find some verses to support that in this book, whatever it is. But if you want to be changed and challenged, if you want to have the roots of your heart deep seep deep into the love of God, obedience is part of that. How, how do we know that? Well, you can ask Jesus because he tells us. John chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus is pretty clear about it. If you love me, you'll obey me. I can assure you, let me just talk about myself. If I have a problem with someone telling me which aisle to walk down in an airplane, I have some serious obedience issues. Why? Because I'm in love with my own government. I'm in love with my own opinion, my own philosophy, my own way. But do you know, as long as I'm more in love with my own way than I am the one who has a better way for me, the roots of my heart will never find the depths of his love. See, we think that, we think that the opportunity, you can go ahead, Alex. We think that the opportunity to be with Jesus only looks like John in the Last Supper. We love that part. Laying our head on Jesus' chest. We're eating a meal together, hearing his heartbeat. Like, we love singing songs about that. Oh, that's, that's awesome. I love Jesus. We're close. The intimacy. He knows me. I know him. Isn't this amazing? Jesus was a human. Like, he gets me. But we forget that Jesus is also a king. And, you know, generally when you use that word presence, like, you know, we use that word all the time in church. Like, it's really Christian-y. Like, oh, the presence or whatever. You know, outside of church, really the, the only time you use that word is in a, either a judicial sense or a legislative sense or a monarch sense. Like you're coming into the presence of the king. There's only one reason you come to the presence of a king. To hear his judgments, his directives, his instructions, his law, his commandment for you. But do you know that the offer is not to burden you more? No, Matthew 28, Matthew 11, 28, 29, 30. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. And then he says this, learn from me. I will teach you a new way to do life. Do you know what obedience is about? It's not just about Jesus isn't impressed by robots. He he genuinely isn't. Or he would have created robots. He He created us with free will, the ability to choose or not choose, to love or not love. You know what he's impressed by? He's impressed by when we have the option to choose our own way. 
we choose him instead. That's what he's impressed by. Do you know the pathway to finding the love of God? It's not, it's not being around church people. It's not, it's not coming to our Sunday service. I hope you come every Sunday to our Sunday service. It sounds like I'm bashing at Ram Church. I'm not. I hope you come every Sunday. It's important. That's a different message. But the key to, to finding the love of God with the roots of your soul is to enter God's presence with a willingness to do whatever he says. Are you hearing me? Come on, Ram Church. We can't pray for the love of God, but have hearts and minds that are still choosing our own way. It doesn't work that way. If you love me, put that verse back up, John 14. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. You know what Jesus is saying? Here's the channel of our love life. Here's the channel of our love life. You want to have, you want to have an amazing on-fire love life with God? I don't mean to be crude there. I'm just saying, dude, obedience is it. I mean, that's, that's the path. It's a heart willing to submit, an invitation for the word of God, and then a willingness, even when it's hard, even when it's challenging, I want to do life your way, Jesus. And do you know what happens to that? One day you wake up and you realize the burden's gone. The yoke is easy. What I'm carrying doesn't feel like a burden at all. That's the promise of Matthew 11. It doesn't even feel like a burden or a yoke. Why? Because I've found everything I need in the love of God. And everything else is just detail.